Hello and welcome. This is the Pupcast. I'm Chris Floyd. And in this first episode, I sit down with Matt Albert, the chair of the Chamber Music Department for the University of Michigan School of Music, Theater, and Dance. And we talk about chamber music, 21st century musicianship, education, a lot of stuff. He knows a lot of stuff. Very nice person. Really glad to sit down and talk with him. Um, check out our website, slypupproductions.com. This is episode one. Here we go. Pubcast number one. You're our first guest. Oh wow! I know, exciting. Right? I'm I'm honored. Um, Thank you. I'm Chris Floyd, joined by Mr. Matt Albert, the man from Chamber <laughs> Music. <laughs> Happy to be here. Thanks it's for great. asking. Me. Um, so I've just got, you know, like I said, we were talking beforehand. Uh huh. Just want to hear your story. Okay. Through like Chamber Music, being a modern musician in the 21st century. Cool. Uh, it's super exciting time to be. Alive, it is sort of. Um, <laughs> we won't talk about <laughs> the current events of the today. Events. Yeah, we won't date the podcast at least. Yeah, okay. so they've created a chamber music department here, and they've hired me to be the new chair. Uh, and since I'm the first hire for the department as chair, I'm here to learn what all the work in chamber music is done in all the other departments, in strings and winds and percussion and piano and saxophone and everything, um, and begin to codify it and begin to explore where there are shared experiences and where things can overlap and what kinds of other experiences uh, students would like to have in chamber music, be they kind of introductory experiences from really being walked through what it means to study a score, you know, before yep. a first rehearsal, yep. to really advanced ones like what it means to promote your own concert or what it means to create a multidisciplinary event yeah. with three or four different arts uh, involved and how you coordinate those things. For sure. So those are the kinds of things that down the road I'm, I'm hoping that this department can offer for students. It's great. Yeah, at least I went to the University of Michigan um, and I was in the contemporary direction. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. And doing, you know, that kind of stuff, playing in UMA, the mm -hmm. University Museum of Art downtown mm -hmm. is great. Things like that are awesome. And I've got a couple of questions lined up for later. But first question I wanted to ask was when you started your career, like mm -hmm. your education or even earlier, mm -hmm. um, everybody's answer to this is always different. But is this where you saw it? Oh, going, God, no. Leading? No, <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, so I started uh, college as a violin and math double major, not really nice, knowing nice. whether... Um, math. I got a math minor. Oh, cool. So. Excellent. Um, after two years, I switched from math to English, so I don't have anything to show <laughs> for the two years of multivariate calculus and linear algebra that I took, but, you know, that's okay. You know um, the area under a curve. <laughs> I used to. I think I looked at my notebooks for multivariate calculus three years after I took the class, and none of my notes made sense to me. It was like someone else had written them. In any case, I was studying both, kind of trying to keep my options open. But within my first couple of years at a conservatory, and this was at Ober Oberlin Conservatory College mm -hmm. in uh, Oberlin, Ohio, I just fell in love with the work of music making, mm -hmm. understanding that uh, I had enough of whatever talent is and can be quantified to play in the game and... I was willing to spend the time working on whatever I had to make it work. So 
and then when I when I started doing that, you know, I was I, I loved playing in an orchestra. I loved playing in a string quartet. And it wasn't until my last couple years, uh, well, my last couple years at Oberlin is when I started playing with the group that was going to become Eighth Blackbird. And so that's when that took off. But it was my second year at, at, at uh, my second year at Oberlin that I started playing in, they call it the CME, the Contemporary Music Ensemble. Mm-hmm. And I just, I loved playing new music. I loved being one of the first people to play a piece rather than the 700th person or whatever to play the Beethoven concerto or a Brahms string quartet or something like that. So, and I love Brahms string quartets. I love the Beethoven concerto. Um, I just found myself connecting in a very exciting way to the challenge of making these notes that I didn't know what they sounded like on paper, mm-hmm. making them come alive was really exciting for me. It is exciting. Yeah. So in line with that, you mentioned like the audience uh-huh. and how do you see that engagement with chamber music specifically okay. or, you know, like programming involving them in a way with the performance? I think that we as performers uh, gain a ton and we serve the music we're performing when we connect directly with whatever audience is in front of us at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, music is a, an art in time. It takes time mm. and it takes years in order to appreciate it. And so uh, the I knowing that I wanted to connect with audiences um, while playing music that what did not necessarily automatically connect with audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, my friends and I started experimenting with um, trying to show our personality on stage. Uh, in the way that we introduced pieces, we would be anecdotal and we would be personal rather than uh, theoretical or historical. Right. right. Uh, when we performed, we thought about what we looked like, um, what gestures we were making. More specifically, though, the difference between stillness and activity. So yeah. that when music was active and dramatic, we allowed ourselves to be that way. Yeah. And when music was still, we thought about all the things that we had to do, whether it was put on a mute or pick up a mallet or turn a page and did those things in a way that amplified the stillness rather than distracted from it. And and I think from that really basic, con- those couple concepts, connect with the audience and think about what you look like. We Eighth Blackbird in particular developed a a really exciting performance aesthetic that I was I was thrilled to be a part of for 15 years. Yeah, it's great. And really, you know, the audience, I think, definitely plays on that. You know, you, you're conveying all of this motion or mm-hmm. lack of motion, mm-hmm. and it's a lot easier. You know, somebody might be dragged along with their friend yes. to a concert, and they're yeah. like, okay, this is cool, right? you know, whatever. But being able to see that the performers are really engaged and truly understand it, even if it, the piece was written like a week ago. Right. You know, I think engagement is really powerful. And I think that engagement leads to comprehension even more than explanation leads to comprehension. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Eighth Blackbird really sought that. And I seek that at my performances just to be super engaged with my interpretation of a piece and mm-hmm. what, whatever that is. And to really analyze that and, and be you know true to the composer, true to the piece, true to my colleagues that I'm playing with on stage right. in that moment. Um, and... Uh, just share that with the audience and be as um, 
hopefully share my excitement for that piece with right, them so right. they can feel that. Yeah. yeah. So, and then playing that into performing in other venues mm-hmm. or n- non-traditional mm-hmm. venues. Yeah. It's interesting because eighth blackbird in particular did not explore the non-traditional venue route very much really yes we played in some um i left eighth blackbird five years ago Mm -hmm. and five years ago is when some in the in the past five years some spaces in new york have sprung up like national sawdust Mm -hmm. um or uh poisson rouge um that i think eighth blackbird either has played at or could play at Mm -hmm. um and would love to, and that fits Eighth Blackbird. But being a percussion piano wind string sextet, we a wanted to always play with a good piano. That's, we wanted to no, be that's somewhere. True. That's a big, <laughs> yeah, big deal with at least a you know a grand, a six or seven foot grand, if not a nine foot. And then we wanted to be somewhere where, frankly, the six, all six of us helping move the marimba into the <laughs> venue didn't have a ton of steps or space or you know whatever. Yep. Like we, yep. we we thought about those things. So because of that. We also thought we sounded really good in traditional music spaces. We thought sure. we sounded good in halls. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely played house concerts. We definitely played in alternative venues, a few of them. But we made more of our career about bringing people and making people feel welcome to mm-hmm. concert halls, in concert halls, uh, yeah. rather than us going to these other venues. Rather That's than just, like stuffy, kind of old, yeah, old world yeah. almost vibe. Yes. And and we definitely dressed, I mean, and some sometimes we dressed too casually on stage, <laughs> some people said, but we definitely did not wear um, formal wear. There was one time, maybe our first or second year in grad school, that we decided to play, we were playing the Webern arrangement of the Schoenberg First Chamber Symphony, mm-hmm. which is for quintet, on a very standard chamber music recital. So we talked about it, oh, what, what should we, we should wear tuxes. I mean, that's what people wear, we should wear tuxes. <laughs> so we wore tuxes and we played the, the piece and when we came off stage or saw our mentor that evening, he was like, you should just never wear tuxes yeah. again. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And we, and we never did, basically, after yeah. that. So. I mean, it goes back to, like, chamber music is so intimate. Mm-hmm. It can be this, you know, very personal thing. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to look like you're at, you know, a, a giant fundraiser. Sure. You're just the background. Yeah, exactly. What do, yeah, what does what you look like communicate? And does it, is, is that in line with what you're trying to communicate with what you say and how you play? And if what we're trying to do is connect then we decided to choose clothes that we thought connected. We, we sometimes dressed like the people who were coming to our concerts, actually, yeah, in that a, kind of street it's a, clothes. It's a big deal. It, it is. And it, it sends, I think, the, the strongest message that it sends is when you walk on stage for the first time and people go, whoa, oh, that's what they're wearing. Yeah. And then 10 minutes into the concert, people aren't really thinking at the, about that as much unless they're staring at somebody they're like i wonder where they got that shirt you know or dress or whatever but i think it's the initial impact that really helps set the tone for the evening Mm -hmm. it puts them at ease yeah and then they're not as tense yeah i think it puts a lot of audience members at ease i don't know for sure i think that it puts other audience members i think it yeah. makes them sit up more. I, mean, I think it makes True. them question what's going on. Yeah. I think that makes them feel awkward, frankly. I think some audience members are made comfortable by tails, by all black, mm. by those kinds of things. And by not wearing those things, we're basically sending just a little bit of a wake up sure. at the beginning saying, listen, wow. check check this out because this is going to be different. Yeah, that's interesting. So, and speaking of that, you know, the audience, those different demographics, yeah. the ones that are, you know, at ease with tails yep. or not. Yep. Um, is there... When you're programming a uh, a concert mm-hmm. or thinking about that, is there a demographic that you're aiming for, 
or is it just like, you know, who shows up, who shows up? That's a really good question. I think that you um, always should consider the location of where you're performing and the series uh, that you're performing on, if you're performing on a series. In other words, if there's a possibility of there being subscribers coming to your concert that have heard string quartets for the other four programs throughout the year and you're the fifth program, then um, at least know what their expectation is and tailor the way you present what you're going to present to that. That being said, we and my approach going forward, what we did was that we played basically what we believed in Mm -hmm. and tried to present it in a way that was welcoming to anyone who would happen to be there, knowing that some people would be there wishing for older, more traditional music. Yeah. And mm-hmm. some people would be there really excited that we were giving a world premiere. Yeah. Um, and we just tried to make sure that we performed in a way that spoke to both of those people or allowed both of those people to listen should they want to listen. Sure. And so ma- making that balance yes. is really important. Yeah. And I think that that's important for students moving forward because uh, I think it's extremely important to... Um, hone for students to hone their curatorial vision for students Mm. to think about what they program and why they're programming it and why it's important to them and you can only hone this by trying it and by juxtaposing old music with new music by juxtaposing mallet pieces with skin pieces with you know whatever by and and seeing how the audience reacts to these different kinds of things does a program of one composer speak to you and does it speak to your audience or does a collage program with five minutes of eight different people's mm-hmm. music speak to you. I think you try these different things out and you curate them based on your beliefs, based on your experience, based on your abilities. Mm-hmm. And kind of like we were talking about earlier, I think that if you're able to do it with, we didn't say conviction, I can't remember the word that we said, but we, you sure. know, if you're able to do it with, if you're able to do it well yeah. um, and believe in it, then it's something that the audience is more likely to come on the ride with mm-hmm. you for. And that's something that, like you said, you got to expose the students to Absolutely. so that they know what to program. Yes. And that yeah. they've got better ideas about, you know, the venues that they can take. Absolutely. And I think that a school is a, a fantastic place for students to experiment with this. Um, I think that's, and I think it's a, a great place for faculty to model some of these things for yeah, students. Definitely. You know, on faculty recitals, students see these things. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you go to a, a faculty recital that has, uh, Brahms, Bartok, and Beethoven on it played extremely well, right? That means one thing. And then if you go to another faculty recital that has Prince and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh com- composers who are living here and working in Michigan, yes. that's something that means something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love for all those ideas to be bouncing around in students' heads. And I would, I love providing opportunity for students to then put those ideas out there on the stage. Definitely. Yeah, there's there's almost a, like, being in a school, being a student at yeah. least, performing, there's no real loss in doing that. Like, if you, yeah. per, if you, if you do that out in the real world yeah. and it's not receptive well, then you're, you're really in, in, you know, in the mud. You're safe in a school, and it's yes. really great to grow and to learn by trying things at a school. Mm-hmm. And you're right, like, if you, if you're, if you have a smaller audience, you have you haven't worried about ticket sales. Right. You haven't worried right. about the presenter's reputation or yep. your reputation. Yep. You're growing your reputation. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's always good for students to strive for excellence. I don't think students should play unprepared. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I don't think anyone should play unprepared. Right. On, on but but I do think students should stretch themselves curatorially mm-hmm. and um, in repertoire of all different kinds. Nice. So 
going down my questions here. Sure. Um, in terms of balance for those works and with students uh-huh. um, thinking about that, if you're going to do a concert, how many pieces do you play? How many of those mm-hmm. are old? Shall we say old has kind of a connotation, but... Well, I use the word old. I mean, I don't yeah. know. What else do you call music that's, that's was true. written 70 years that's ago? That's true. <laughs> um, how, do you th- how do you approach that? And how do you think students might approach that in a way where they can bounce ideas off each other better? Uh, I mean, I, I definitely think that the instrument dictates things as mm-hmm. much as anything else. The repertoire for the instrument. If you're talking about violin, then you look at... Um, basically repertoire from the Baroque era onward. And uh, you ask yourself again, are you trying to represent one era, one composer, or are you trying to look for breadth? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is a very broad first oh, yeah. choice that you can make. And then based on the, that choice, whether, whether you're going for depth or breadth, you can make a lot of other choices after that. Um, meanwhile, the percussion repertoire is basically 100 <laughs> years old. Yep. Effectively. Hardly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there's older stuff, but it's like... Right, right. It's It's... There's not anywhere near not not nearly the amount or the um, the depth of exploration. The exploration has been much more in the past seventy five years. Oh yes, um, and so when you're talking about breadth, you're still talking about things written within the past the past seventy five mm-hmm. years. But there is a difference between pieces written in the thirties and the fifties and the seventies and today. So I think that's the different kind of breadth. Plus, with percussion, you have instruments. I oh. mean, just so many colors. Oh, do we? <laughs> Like so, you said, we got to move it everywhere. Yes. I'm yes. as bad as pianos. But. <laughs> well, pianists often don't have to do the moving That's themselves. That's true. So they, just, they often show up and then are at the, the mercy of whatever instrument's right. there, which is yeah. a different difficulty. Every, everything has difficulties yes. of its own. So I think that all these instruments have power and grace on their own, and you explore the breadth and depth of the repertoire for those instruments. I also really recommend that students, especially when they're beginning to explore a chamber music career, work with people they want to work with. Mm. It's actually more exciting for students who are similarly motivated and dedicated to get together and put on a show, even if it's a trombonist and a violinist and a xylophone player, mm-hmm. and just figure out the repertoire, yeah. then to form a string quartet with four people who might not be motivated in the same way. And right. I'm not even saying motivated better or worse. I'm just saying in the same way because there's a lot of different things going on at school. Um, but I think that the most exciting chamber music projects happen when, for whatever reason, the students are motivated similarly, really close to one another yeah. to do something together. Mm-hmm. And even then, like you can get the trombonist and the xylophonist and whatever, and then work with composition students. Yes. Which is a huge part of it. Yes. Yeah. Don't, I I think that assuming that you have to play previously written material Mm -hmm. um, limits you when there's such a great composition department here. So (laughs) all the departments are great. They are. And it's, it's really exciting to be able to like, you don't even have to cherry pick anything. You just like send an email to that department and then you can work with whoever responds because they are all equally motivated. Yeah. That's been a really exciting thing for me to figure out in my third month here um, that the the level of student um, ability and motivation is very high across the board. It's exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah. So in terms of like the future. Yes. It's a big <laughs> statement. Uh, the future of at least, we'll say, um, student chamber music. Yes. Where do you see it going? I want student chamber music to be um, uh, flexible, meaningful and to have 
uh, impact on students' lives. I want students to be able to work across their disciplines or within their disciplines. In fact, I think it's important for students to do canonical work for their instruments. I think mm-hmm. it's important that Definitely. violinists work in a piano trio or a string quartet for part of their time here. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for students to work in cross-discipline um, experiences, cross-instrument, cross-voice, cross-composition, also into theater, into dance, yes. into anything else, art, mm-hmm. uh, architecture, um, and figuring out ways to connect these arts just opens up so many possibilities for critical thinking and for creative thinking. Uh, I, those are the kinds of opportunities, again, that school is a very safe place to provide. Mm-hmm. And I want the Chamber of Music Department to be a place that we um, rigorously uh, we rigorously provide room for the canonical work to be done. And we also provide us a place to take the next steps mm-hmm. to apply that to apply those techniques, to apply that pedagogy to non-canonical work yeah. and to try out some of these different things. Yeah. I, re- I liked what you said about, you know, working even like all the way towards architecture and that kind yeah. of stuff. I mean, we've in percussion, we've got Zanakis, but yes. Um, point being that all of these aspects of what you could quantify as we'll say art yeah. can work together. Yes. And it's, there's not barriers between like, I'm a painter and I'm a, I'm a percussionist. Like you can work together if you're inspired to do yeah. so, and you, yeah. and again, similarly motivated yeah. and open-minded, then absolutely yes. you can always find avenues to collaborate. And it does provide a really, a really good way to improve critical thinking. I think so. Yeah. If you have to ask, if you have to ask yourself the question, what does this brushstroke mean to an audience, and what does this bowstroke mean yeah. to an audience, yeah. and you start comparing those to yourself, you draw so many conclusions that mm-hmm. can inform so much about the way that you play. It seems like a really nice way to, you know, get out of your own head in terms of like if you, you, you know, uh, I can yeah. get, I can get really bogged down uh, yeah. with like technique Absolutely. for something. Yeah. Um, and then if you have to think from somebody else's shoes, that provides a new way to approach not only that piece, but anything else. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a big thing about being in school, right? Is, is honing yeah. your own craft and it, you do stay in your head. You stay in that, that place that working one-on-one with a master teacher puts right. you in, which is a wonderful place to learn a lot of things, but breaking out of it to apply it in different ways. Mm-hmm. I think chamber music is one of the best locales, one of the best places for students to actually apply these different kinds of thinking and techniques that they've learned. Yeah. So we've talked about kind of the future, at least uh, for students and stuff. What yeah. you, you talked a little about, about what you did as a student. Do you yeah. want to talk a little bit more like kind of where you positioned yourself as a student, as a student and like trying to get that entrepreneurial spirit mm. and, you know, at least where you projected yourself being yeah, back right. then. So I found being a student liberating um, in that there was, for me, it was just clear that there were many different avenues that I could be a violinist. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, I would say sometime after my junior year, the idea of being an orchestral player was extremely appealing. I loved yeah. leading sections and I loved playing orchestra music and I loved the force of 80, 90 people on stage and what oh, that yeah. sounds like. Oh yeah. Um, and I also loved playing in a string quartet and uh, the idea of getting to play a Beethoven cycle, getting to play the Bartok quartets, these masterpieces was also really exciting to me. Uh, and then when 8th Blackbird started, that was a completely different thing. And the reason that I pursued 8th Blackbird basically was because it took off. That group of six people 
was similarly motivated. We worked hard in the same way together and we had some success at the fish off competition. Yeah. Having had that, we kind of used that as motivation to stay together and to work beyond our time at Oberlin. Um, but entrepreneurially, it's interesting. For some reason, when I was in college, um, I felt open-minded to all possibilities from the beginning. Mm. There was not a time that I felt forced into any one path or another. I just latched on to the path at which I was having success, yeah. to be frank. <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people do, but yeah. it's, it's definitely, you know, gives you a lot of choices, at least to start out with when that you've got is. that inspiration. Yes. And it's also about culture, I think. Mm -hmm. oh, I okay. think the culture of a school needs to provide the openness for students to make these leaps themselves to make these mm -hmm. to try these things themselves um, the the more that the culture can allow for this kind of experimentation the more entrepreneurial it is by nature i think yeah that it's that's really important and yeah. especially we were talking before about you know technology being a big part of that mm -hmm. um, and at least what we try to <laughs> provide at slide pop is yeah. for you know you can get yourself out there you can yeah. play you know you know play whatever you want but yeah. You can record it and have a really nice, clean video yeah. and you can show people that, you know, this is what I do and yeah. they can tune in from anywhere. Yeah, it's really important. I mean, if you are trying to present yourself or if you are trying to collaborate with other people and you want to introduce yourself to them, you know that they've got four or five minutes. They, I mean, they might have 70 minutes to listen to a disc, but you right. know they've got four or five yes. minutes. And so if you can send them a video of you sent playing and representing yourself extremely mm -hmm. well, if you can send them to something that they can click on in an email and then see you, mm -hmm. you have connected with them uh, and made the best use of technology that I can think of, yeah. basically. It's all about those connections. Absolutely. In school, yes. finding equally inspired people yeah. or motivated people. Yes. And then finding them across the continent. Yeah. Yeah. This is very important. It's it's important and it's challenging. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to stay open to a lot of possibilities and not uh, despair when when things don't work <laughs> out, right? When uh, yes. you know, I've seen a lot of projects start out and last well for seven weeks or even a semester, even two semesters. And then for some reason, people become differently motivated. Mm -hmm. And I, life is complicated. I don't think it's wrong for, you know, a clarinetist and a trio to all of a sudden want to do something else. Mm -hmm. I think it's better to realize that when you're in school than oh, to realize yeah. that five years down the road. Um, so again, I think school is a great place to try these different things. Yeah. Well, great. Um, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. It's thanks been, for having me, Chris. Uh, can people reach like Twitter... Yeah, I am Instagram. A, I am an infrequent user of Twitter and sure, Instagram, sure. but my handle on both is Gonzmat, G-A-N-Z-M-A-T-T. Nice. So uh, they can absolutely look me up there or at least follow me on Facebook. I, I don't friend everybody that right. I get requests from on Facebook just to maintain a little bit of um, oh, definitely. distance. But uh, <laughs> I try to put some interesting stuff up on there every now and then. Nice. Too. Yeah. Well, thanks. Sure. It's been thanks fun. Great. It's nice to talk to you. You too.